Take pop culture happy hour and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Songs we love, local stories, your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make driving, fixing dinner, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One in your app store now. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we will look at Riverdale, the CW's dark and sexy reimagining of uh, Archie comics. Yes, really. Archie got hot. He's got abs now. Then we'll talk about teen soaps from Beverly Hills, 90210 to Dawson's Creek and beyond. And we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. But before we get started, here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. I am Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. I'm Glenn Weldon. I write for the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair is the woman who taught me genuinely everything that I know about TV's brooding melodramatic teenagers. Sarah D. Bunting. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Proud to be eating Kevin Williamson's lunch once again with all of you. That's right. So, Sarah, tell the people who don't know your work, uh, what do you do? I am a writer and an editor, the East Coast editor-in-chief of a TV coverage website called Previously.TV. That's right. And Sarah is also uh, was one of the founders of Television Without Pity, where I worked for quite a while. And now, when I first encountered Sarah, we will talk about this more later, but she was writing about teen soaps even back then. The CW has been expanding its superhero comic brand with Arrow and The Flash and Supergirl, but it's branching out into other comics too. Specifically, this week it premiered Riverdale, a dark and gritty small town murder mystery starring Archie, Betty, Veronica, Jughead, and their friends. Created by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who's worked on shows as varied as Big Love, Glee, and Looking. It stars KJ Appa as Archie Andrews, Camila Mendez as Veronica, Lily Reinhardt as Betty, and bringing perhaps the longest resume among the principals, Cole Sweet Life of Zach yes. and Cody Sprouse as Jughead. <laughs> and by the way, I should also mention, was also a Ben on Friends, oh. uh, Ross's son Ben on Friends. Anyway, let's get into it. Now, this premiered this past week. I have seen the first four. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know Sarah watched the first two (laughs) and surrendered. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about your reaction to this, uh, Miss Sarah Bunting. I just didn't have much of a reaction. I think I think that's my issue with the show. Everybody is beautiful. There are all these sort of teen soap tropes. But what I just kept thinking, despite the presence of Luke Dylan McKay Perry yeah. as one of the parents in the cast, and he's, I know he was on the cover of AARP a few months ago. <laughs> Many that? people tweeted this at me. I bet. I couldn't get into it. I realize it's not the point of a teen soap versus a teen drama. And we can talk a little bit about right. where those might differ later, but it's not necessarily what they do to like make a make the protagonists relatable or sort of make you care about the journey <laughs> of the hero or the anti-hero. But on the other hand, if it's not bad enough to be so bad it's good. Right? Yeah. You have to be doing something that isn't either a total ripoff of Twin Peaks or, in my case, making me wonder why they canceled the Carrie Diaries if this week's sauce is what we were going to get instead. Yeah, and I do want to ask you, too, I don't know if you had this reaction, but I, I was watching this and I was thinking, 
this sort of is the pilot of Dawson's Creek all over again. <laughs> well, because you, of the Pacey and Tamara Well, exactly. So parallel. You, if you uh, watched Riverdale in the pilot, you know that there is a scandalous affair between a student and a teacher at the school. That was also true at the beginning of Dawson's Creek. You also had the dude with his best friend. The dude in the center of Dawson's Creek was, of course, Dawson Leary, who's played by James Vanderbeek. Then you had the best friend. That was Joey. She was Katie Holmes. And then you had his, uh, his like, loser friend, and that was Pacey. He was played by Joshua Jackson. And then you had the exotic new girl from the city, and she was played by Michelle Williams, who, of course, is now a serious actress. So the dynamic there, which was always that, like, Dawson and Joey are friends, and she loves him, but he doesn't see her that way. He sees Jen, the glamorous whatever, uh, is very reminiscent of the way that Dawson's Creek started. And... Uh, as in Riverdale, one of these characters, although it was Pacey and not Dawson on Dawson's Creek, is having an affair with a teacher. That's what Sarah was referencing when she said Pacey and Tamara. So although there are differences, there are similarities, right? Because in Riverdale, you have Archie and you have Betty and they're best friends and she pines for him, but he doesn't pine for her. And you have this glamorous girl from out of town, just like Jen, the Michelle Williams character here. It's Veronica. And she catches Archie's eye in kind of a different way uh, than Betty does. So although there are differences, those similarities, you know, Archie is your Dawson a little bit, you know, Betty is your Joey and and Jen is your Veronica. You could make this argument, I think. Yeah, if you check the Archie concordance, mm-hmm. there, there are there are some some pretty some pretty some pretty strong uh, pretty strong differences between the two. Well, sure. And I, as I was watching it, I thought it's such a weird idea to take this book. I'm going to sort of throw this to Glenn to talk about, but. Glenn, what is your reaction to the whole idea of Archie comics, which have all, always kind of been the, the most wholesome? Talk to me about this. Well, they're survivors. They survived uh, a lot of times when other comics went under because they are so wholesome, because they are a known quantity, and you can hand an Archie digest into your kids' hands and have no fear. Until recently. Now uh, the Archie line has launched a new Riverdale line, which is which is more uh, YA-oriented. They've taken the tic-tac-toe out of his hair. He, they're more photorealistic. They have some really good writers, some really good artists on it. And, uh, for example, there's a Betty and Veronica book that just launched, which does what this show does smartly, which is it makes that their rivalry is not about Archie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's about the, they're coming at the world from two different perspectives, yeah. which is smart. The difference is the Betty and Veronica comic is narrated by Hot Dog, uh, Jughead's dog, and it is very fun. <laughs> and this piece of crap is is narrated by an emo haircut named Jughead. And so the way into the show is his narration. Oh he's, boy. he's writing a novel yeah. using everybody's real names. Well, why is that happening? Because yeah. they name check in cold blood a couple billion a couple times million. per episode. Yeah. And yeah. just just let's take everything out of it. Jughead Jones is a terrible writer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just this narration. There were so many oofs were landing on the floor in, in, in our apartment as we watched this thing. I mean, are we supposed to think that Jughead Jones is a genius blogger? Well, <sighs> and here's the thing is it puts you in the place where I remember when I watched the relatively recent movie, movie adaptation in the last couple of years of on the road mm-hmm. and you get a lot of like here's the romantic shots Ugh. of the the writer writing basically everything that has ever been centered around a dude typing <laughs> is, is is terrible now people are going to write in <laughs> I'm and sure say, there are exceptions people are going to write in and say here's my exception i get it i'm sure i agree with you that there are many exceptions but you do feel when you see like emo 
sad. Well, also Archie. Knit capped dude. Yeah. Archie is also, uh, you know, he wants to write songs. Um, yeah, so, oh, I mean, like, oh, I think, oh. uh, right, exactly. Exactly. Uh, like, uh, I like Camila Mendez in this. I like uh, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's bringing a nice energy to it. Uh, she's going out of her way to be not just bitchy. Uh, they're leaving that to Kevin Keller, the gay character, who is much bitchier than he is in the comics. Yeah. Uh, and I think what the show is, I mean, yes, it's Dawson's Creek Light, but that's what it is. I think what it's trying to be and not succeeding is something closer to how. How to get away with murder. Right. Uh, but it's not leaning into the smuttiness. It's not leading into its venality. It's holding back. And we're getting little bits of, you know, hints of things to come. And maybe as the show goes on, the momentum will let it kind of spin out of control in the way that uh, How to Get Away with Murder spins out of control. Right now, it's wanting all its characters to be likable. How to Get Away with Murder doesn't care about that. Uh, they are hateful, venal people that just go spinning off in their own directions. And this is just a little too, it just needs to lean harder into what it's trying to be. I think that's my exact issue with the show. I did not dislike it as much as either you two jerks. <laughs> um, it, it, to me, it is going for a very awkward balance between Dawson's Creek and Twin Peaks. Mm. And for me, I feel like lean a little harder into one or the other. I kind of wanted this show to be a little bit more radical in, a, in its approach because it's taking Archie comics and it's got Archie sleeping with Miss Grundy. It is clearly decided that it is going to make what it thinks are some some kind of bold choices with these characters, but it's always kind of walking them back. Yeah. And it's it's very, very tame. It's like, it's dark light, which to me is just not necessarily a, a, a tone I'm, I'm terribly interested in. It's toying with this murder mystery, but then also these slightly more banal high school story of the week stuff. I watched all, all four, and there's like an episode that's like Betty and Veronica take on slut shaming, mm-hmm. which is which is fine and and great, but it's it's not necessarily it's not necessarily going with that darker edge that it seemed to be aiming for for a little while. Well, and from the very opening scenes. Where here's this Queen Bee villain character. Mm-hmm. She's going for a July 4th boat ride in like full Jackie Kennedy regalia and four inch red pumps. Mm-hmm. Then the implication begins and continues that she and her twin are engaging in a relationship that is not customary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then he's fished out of the river and there's a, I mean, <laughs> let's just say that, um, the ability of the makeup department to (laughs) make this scary and not hilarious. (laughs) Anyway, there was really this like sense and just the way it was shot was really beautiful and creepy in the beginning. And I was like, okay, the acting is not the best. Miss Grundy. Oh, yeah, I agree. Couple problems there. But I thought, okay, this could be bonkers in the way of um, passions, Mm -hmm, for example. mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted Mm -hmm. bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. And I the interesting thing about that is I wanted more. I mean, I think if you're talking about wanting more of the bonkers part of it, what you want is more of there is a Ryan Murphy influence here, I think, mm-hmm. also. Sure. When I to me, the redheaded character, Cheryl Blossom, who comes from the comics, but is very different, I think, from. Yeah, she's not evil. Yeah. Um, that character to me, the redheaded girl is very much a Ryan Murphy kind of character, not just from something like Glee, but from something like Scream queens that is a very ryan murphy feeling character to me i think if you wanted a little bit more of that i'd be in favor of it with that said here's the thing i kind of enjoyed this (laughs) (laughs) 
I kind of I kind of dug it. I kind of was into it. I think it does not necessarily benefit from binge watching, despite the fact that I watched all four back to back. It did feel like what I enjoyed about it wore off as I watched four of them. And I think it would have hit me better one at a time. Because what is good about it is this kind of silly weirdness that it has. Because when Stephen talks about, you know, there's this Betty and Veronica take on slut shaming that doesn't necessarily get as dark as you want. It gets pretty dark. It gets pretty weird at one point. There is a weird sequence in there that I kind of thought was, yeah, you know, it's it's campy dark. It's not incredibly, you know, artful dark. But I did sort of enjoy it. The thing that I liked about kind of trying to get into those feelings was... I think I was mostly interested in the girls. I think the girls Mm -hmm. are interesting characters. I think like Glenn said, I think they're trying to make it so that the rivalry and the friendship between those two girls is not completely centered around this dude and who he likes, especially since at the outset, he's not particularly in pursuit of either of them. And I think that's a good choice because one of the things I think the show has in common with Dawson's Creek is they both kind of put this dude at the center. Who's kind of a drip. Around (laughs) whom everything else seems to revolve and with whom everyone seems to be obsessed, including his much more interesting best dude friend, Mm -hmm. who you may not like the emo poet Jughead, but as you get into the show... He certainly has more charisma, I think, than Archie. Okay. Well, no. low bar. <laughs> low bar. Set right. the bar Lowest a bar. Perhaps not as much bar as... Bar flush with ground. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not as much as Joshua Jackson had more charisma than Serial Boxhead, James Van Der Beek. <laughs> Oh, well, <laughs> shut up. Beek had charisma. Just... Well, and Beek got funny later in his yes. career. Similarly, they've put kind of a drip in the middle of the show, and that was one of the weaknesses of Dawson's Creek, too, is that as the show went on, you kind of wanted to be like, why do all these people hang around this dude and care so much about what he thinks? Brings- it's also by There's also, by the way, a similarity to Brandon Walsh, I would argue, on 90210. Well, I, I think that may be symptomatic of just soaps, period, that you often yeah. have a simp center who brings a guitar to lunch right yes the catalyst for yeah i mean there's there's a lot of telling not showing where that character is concerned we hear a lot about how obsessed everybody is is with him we hear how good his songs are except when he plays them and they're terrible (laughs) and the whole business of him like coming in to like help josie and the pussycats Mm -hmm. like here play my songs instead of yours that's a little uncomfortable is a little bit horrifying there are i think a couple of bits of clever casting on the show i do think the casting of luke perry as as the dad in a way almost plays like a little bit of a meta commentary because luke perry looks so old in this and all these high school sophomores who look (laughs) between like 20 and 25 there's a clever little stranger things callback in episode three that i thought was pretty funny yeah and they also they also cast dean kane on supergirl Mm -hmm. as one of the parents also which has that same sort of like let us acknowledge our forebears yes uh there are lots and lots of literary references lots and lots of pop culture movie references but it's not done in dialogue so that it becomes like a lingo like in buffy it's not stylized at Mm -hmm. all they just kind of drop in Mm -hmm. and they just feel the show feels like it's really trying very hard well first of all i wanted to um note for the record that the dialogue contains the following quote the tony morrison book release party i organized End quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I would also note as um, an occasionally trying too hard old myself of a certain four decades of vintage, it just sounded a little like people my age trying to replicate the way that their kids may talk. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it just was feeling a little strained and unnatural to me as well. But on the other hand, I was looking at this more in terms of the missed opportunities and like, if we're going to have Jughead's overwrought voiceover, yeah, then make it Jughead Mars and right. make this a noir about him solving this central mystery. Yeah, But yeah, I think they may have taken the wrong influences. I mean, I think this thing has some potential because, again, everybody's talking about Twin Peaks, and that's obviously the the triggering incident in it. I didn't get a lot of Twin Peaks from this because there's no weirdness in it. There is a hint of weirdness with the Betty character coming down the pike, a hint of something going on with her that makes her more than just the girl next door. So if they, again, if they lean into that and just get nuts, I think uh, think there might be something here. Agreed. If you, you know, if you check out Riverdale, see if you think it also needs to be more weird. We are listening. I'll be curious to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH and tell us what you think of Riverdale and Archie and Betty and Veronica and emo Jughead (laughs) typing in a diner (laughs) like dudes throughout history who you do not want to sit down and talk to. When we come back, boy, you know, I love talking about teen soaps with Sarah D. Bunting. So we are going to keep doing that right after this. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Green Chef, the easy, organic way to cook. Green Chef's organic meal kits deliver fresh ingredients and healthy recipes right to you. Pick your plan. Go to greenchef.com slash NPR to get $50 off. Hey, before we get back to the show, we have a new president, and as things transition, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have two new podcast episodes each week, so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or whatever your morning routine. Make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it as you follow the first 100 days and beyond. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app or at npr.org podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Now, one of the reasons I was so excited to have Sarah here to talk about Riverdale is that Sarah goes way, way back with the teen soap genre. I met her when she was writing about Dawson's Creek. She has a podcast about Beverly Hills 90210 that I've talked about on this show sometimes, which is called Again With This, Beverly Hills 90210. And we thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to try to put Riverdale and its kind of band of murder solvers in the context of the teen soap genre. Now, I am going to posit that the earliest example I could find of what I would almost consider a teen soap was fame in the oh. early 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, which was still more teen drama than teen soap, but you're getting there. Other than that, I do feel like teen soap-wise, the alpha and the omega is 90210. Do you agree, Sarah? I do agree. The Sort of exploring the difference between a teen drama and a teen soap is well above my pay grade, I'm afraid. But 90210 tried to be both. So the evolution of it from the first season where it was trying to be more sincere, Mm -hmm. a little more, not highlights magazine-y, but a little more learning and hugging. Right. No, there's lots of hugging and learning in that first season. And then they realized that they really had to start using what I think of as the 
not, well, yes, tropes, but also like this is very codified in soap operas that mm-hmm. you have like the B central character that we talked about. It's not supposed to be simpy, but that's how it always ends yeah, up. It's true. The you know, the dark star in opposition to him or her, the rich town patriarchy that your protagonists are often struggling against or yep. are a misunderstood part of, blah, 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 blah. And then I think there was an evolution on the part of Beverly Hills nine oh two and oh towards First of all, as the kids got older, you could do more with sex and right. make it a little more rated R. Right. I mean, the average high school student is not like if he or she is going to all his classes and has all his or her extracurriculars or whatever. Like I even when I had a boyfriend finally in high school, my life was quite dull. Yeah. <laughs> my life is still quite dull. <laughs> so I have a lot of sympathy for showrunners of teen soaps. Mm-hmm. As risible as it is in the case of Riverdale, that these people who clearly are able to rent cars and possibly old enough to run for president in a couple (laughs) of cases are sophomores. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? I think I grew six inches my sophomore. Like, this this is not realistic. But I'm very sympathetic to the fact that, A, they need to park it somewhere early enough in high school that it gives them some runway. Right. Totally. In case the thing takes off. But on the other hand, sophomores... Uh, you know <laughs> K-, K yeah and then if the show's on long enough you end up with Brandon Walsh running for the student senate of California University and it's like what do we do to ourselves like now we're now we've run through all these teen soap tropes already and now that they're proper independent adults yeah. with all the storylines of college ahead we've kind of done everything and they're already repeating romantic partnerships among the characters yeah I don't envy the people who have to write these things, particularly for teenagers. Yeah. Well, the the tradition of the awkward transition to everyone happening to go to the same college is sort of (laughs) a a classic of this genre as well, whether it's like, hey, it just so happens we're all going to go to California University. It all just so happens we're all going to move to Boston for different reasons, which is what (laughs) happened on Dawson's Creek. It sort of helps to be like Felicity and start with everybody in college in New York. Because then at least you have a reason to, first of all, keep them there. And it's a little more plausible that maybe they might just like stay in New York. Or stay in college for six, seven years. Right. Yeah. I don't consume a lot of teen fare or stuff about teens or stuff about high school for much the same reason that grandpa doesn't talk about the war. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to go back and revisit that. (laughs) But Ken, when you talk about the difference between teen drama and teen soap, give me an example of a teen drama. Because everything I'm thinking of, I think of as soapy. I would say, well, my so-called life, of course, is the uh, the yeah. original like teen drama that did this correctly. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think both my so-called life and I would say Party of Five. Mm-hmm. Party of Five is more of a, maybe a hybrid, but I think both of those were trying more for the, and the DNA is more direct in my so-called life, were trying for the the 30-something of high school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, character-driven yeah. and situation-driven versus... You know, the plot wood chipper <laughs> demands right. sacrifice. The thing that, that most convinces me that 902 and O in particular is very easily classifiable as a soap is that 
In the same way that, like, if you go back and you look at the history of, like, All My Children, you would find Erica Kane, Cudahy, Chandler, Mulcahy, whatever her <laughs> freaking various names were. <laughs> the same way that you think, like, oh, yeah, remember that time that Marlena on Days of Our Lives was possessed by the devil? That yep. was pretty rad. Hmm. When I actually started listening to Sarah's 90210 podcast, I realized that after the first, like, couple years, I really didn't remember what happened, even though I watched a lot of it. Yeah. And when I went back, I was like, oh, yeah, that guy because they're all these kind of interchangeable love interests that kind of show up and go away and there's the one who it also has a horrible guy with a guitar but <laughs> but it's but it's uh, um yeah i think what you realize is they just like sarah is saying about the plot wood chipper you have the kind of just chewing up plot for plot's sake that you constantly have to be dropping in new stuff as opposed to shows like if you look at my so-called life they really only told a couple of long stories. Now, there's only one season, but say, they yeah. they told really a couple of longer stories. And I think even if that show had run longer, those would still have been the stories they were telling, as opposed to something like 90210, which in that first season in particular, they were constantly bringing on like some new person who, after they were in this story, would just disappear. Would we disappear. never <laughs> saw them again. We never so saw you're them saying, again. So you're saying the metric of soapiness is not mood, tone, overwroughtness, melodrama. It's plot contrivance after plot contrivance, churning of plot. It's some of both. Those things are related in the sense that one of the things that gives a soap the tone of silliness that it has is that they're constantly just having to throw plot elements Mm -hmm. in there so that you can have that constant tune in tomorrow, dun, 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 because there's... They don't really do sort of the long arc story. They do sometimes, but for the most part, the stories are supposed to pay off within a month or two. But there is a whole world of what I think are firmly kind of weekly teen soaps. Your Pretty Little Liars, your... Uh, the O.C. Yeah. The O.C. And Gossip Girl. Degrassi is an interesting one, Sarah. Where would you put Degrassi in all of this? I would put that firmly in, like, educational programming. Right. The new one that dropped in, I guess, 2001 and I think is still going, definitely embraced the soapier side of things. And I think what a present day, meaning after Dawson's, like after the year 2000, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, teen soap has to do is have a like an awareness of what has come before it in the genre and be able to wink at it and sort of lean into mm-hmm. those tropes and structures, I guess, yeah. because it is a genre fiction, right. technically, like any other kind of genre fiction it has its rules and and ways right gossip girl not everybody i guess was a fan of the ending i didn't actually watch the show but i think it struck a chord very quickly with the viewing audience because it did seem extremely aware of what had gone before it and it just stripped out everything that it felt it didn't need and was like here's pretty people and there's a lot of yelling and they just go to nightclubs whatever you bring up an interesting point about about the self-awareness of these shows and i think the downside of that self-awareness is I felt this watching Riverdale constantly was I felt like it was it spent more time referencing old shows and -hmm. referencing things that happened in old shows and character types you see in old shows than reflecting any kind of imaginable reality. I often find when I have watched teen soaps, I just don't see anything relating to like my own teenage experience, my kids own teenage experience. 
watching Riverdale, it's like, well, that feels like Buffy. You know, that feels like the OC. I mean, my own high school experience, I think like Sarah's, was pretty boring. And I also went to a really, 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 really small high school in a really, really small town. I feel like you only ever see, maybe it's what high school is like in L.A., but you only ever see a certain type of high school with a certain type of kids. Yeah. And I one of the things that's interesting is that you mentioned Buffy. And Buffy and Dawson's Creek were sort of, to me, part of the same swell of teen shows at the time that, like, WB and what is now the CW, that those were coming out, the WB and UPN and now right. the CW. But where do you put Buffy? I was only a part-time Buffy viewer do any of you see soapy elements in Buffy or no? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, in a big way, yeah. But I don't know. I think they had showrunners there, for the, at least for the first three seasons, who had some sense of where they were going at the end. You had a big bad that you had to defeat at the end. So that kind of right. kept some of the, the stuff. And if anything, it was too too guilty of Monster of the Week. If anything, that kind of kept... But they, I think they had a tighter rein on things. But there were certainly, especially as it went on, soapy elements that kind of spun out of control. It's got a little bit of both, but because the stakes are life and death... Yeah. As that, it were. That, as it, it, that gives it more... That gives it a little more heft and made some of the soapy the kind of romance elements had some, I think, more emotional weight to them as, yeah. a, as a result. That was more character and situation driven. And then I think they may have run out of ideas. And that was another show where the transition to college perhaps yeah. should not have happened. There's always the one smart character who's like, well, I got into Yale, but I chose not to go. <laughs> yeah. <And> it's always <laughs> Yale. What the hell? <laughs> Why is it yeah. always Yale? I don't. I don't get it. Friday Night Lights has some of that graduation issue as well. Like you need to cycle, you need to cycle in yeah. new characters because, and, and it's yeah. part of what what Sarah was saying about casting. Everybody has to be playing fifteen year olds. If you last four seasons, you yeah. know you got to. Well, that's a very interesting. I'm so glad that you mentioned that show because I adored that show and yeah. I thought they did to the extent that they were able, especially since the heart of that show was Coach and Mrs. Mm -hmm. Coach, right. mm -hmm. that they did a pretty good job of cycling in new people and being realistic about who would stick around and who would go away to college and who would stay in town and so on. Yeah. yeah. But the soapiest thing they ever did yeah. is also pointed to as like an ongoing storyline in season two that many even super fans of the yeah. show just refuse to even yeah. mention yeah. out yeah. loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the plot twist that cannot be named. And that's, and that's the plot twist that, like Sarah said, feels the most soapy because it feels the most like you're feeding plot into that wood chipper. Mm -hmm. It feels yeah. the most like, let's just do a thing. Yeah. It's not a let's just do a thing kind of show. And that's why I admire, I agree so much with Sarah about the fact that what I really loved about the way Friday Night Lights handled its position as, in many ways, it has soapy elements that were about teenagers, right? People yeah. with each other's girlfriends and boyfriends and all that stuff. First of all, the execution, obviously, is everything in shows like this. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it matters how the writing is and the acting is. And I, I, in no way do I mean to dismiss that. But also, they, when they got to the point where these kids would graduate, like Sarah said, they kind of just took a deep breath they took the opportunity to bring in, like, Michael B. Jordan. Like, oh, that seems like a win, you know? Yeah. Hard, hard to argue with that yeah. logic. It is indeed. It is indeed. Again, I am fascinated to hear. I kind of want to hear what folks have to say about this, what you think about this. Particularly, I, I'm interested in hearing from voracious consumers yeah. of the OC and Gossip Girl and things like that. When we come back, it is going to be time for our favorite segment of This Week and Every Week, What is Making Us Happy This Week? So come right back. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Zola, an online wedding registry that makes it easy for modern couples to curate a personalized wish list. Couples can choose products from over 450 brands, register for unique life experiences, or even cash all in one place. New products can be added from any store at any time. Zola also allows couples to withdraw cash fund gifts and to control when gifts are shipped. Create your registry today and get a $50 credit at Zola.com slash happy hour. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? Finally got around to seeing Fences, which, uh, as as most people probably know, was directed by and stars Denzel Washington as a garbage man who is sort of in constant conflict, which plays out over the course of many, many monologues. Mm-hmm. It, it's based on a, a, a stage play by August Wilson, and Denzel Washington keeps it very contained. It still feels fairly stable. I think for good and for ill. What really stood out to me about this movie that I just love is the performance of Viola Davis. And Viola Davis has a couple of scenes in this movie that are reminiscent of like what Michelle Williams does near the end of Manchester by the Sea, where she has big, emotional, Oscar clippy scenes. And they are amazing. She is a fantastic actor. And those scenes literally drip with emotion uh, in, 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 in ways that really work. But part of what I love so much about that performance is that in much of it, she's very, very quiet. And for a movie that is doing so much stagey monologuing, just getting to, a chance to fix on her face and see how much acting she is doing with her face was just really exciting as an audience member. I, I Ultimately, the movie to me feels a little not quite all there. It feels a little stagey. It's very, very performance-driven, like so many of these Oscar-type movies. Uh, But I love, love, love the performance of Viola Davis in that movie, Fences. Thank you very much. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? I, too, have been watching lots of Oscars-y films in preparation for the nominations, and it's great, but it can sometimes feel like homework, especially when the films seem very important. So I uh, treated myself to a couple uh, queer movies. Yay, queer movies. And uh, the first one was Closet Monster. It's a Canadian indie starring Connor Jessup, who did such amazing work in American Crime. It's the story of a kid growing up whose hamster talks to him, and the hamster is named Buffy, and it's voiced by Isabella Rossellini. And from that description, you think, wildly whimsical. No. <laughs> this this film is pretty dark. Uh, it's also pretty Canadian, so the houses and stories are thick on the ground. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just such a good performance, and it's really interesting, and it's hitting a lot of the same beats you expect it to hit, but it's doing it with a style and a grace that I really enjoy. So that's Closet Monster. The other one is Lazy Eye, uh, written and directed by Tim Kirkman. It's about a gay LA graphic designer who has this amazing weekend house in Joshua Tree, and uh, one of his old flames from 15 years ago who broke his heart, you know, they kind of show up at this at this cabin and proceed to have sex and talk. And it, it is a very talky film, but I found myself really liking both these characters. I found my my uh, sympathies kind of going back and forth over the course of these, these conversations that happen, which don't seem didactic or anything. They just seem natural. Uh, it was a really enjoyable, quirky film, uh, Lazy Eye. 
Thank you very much. Uh, Closet Monster and Lazy Eye. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Glenn. Sarah Bunting, what is making you happy this week, ma'am? I am also bringing a movie to the table. It's a TV movie, though, a documentary from PBS's independent lens called The Witness. It is about the brother of Kitty Genovese's search for what really happened to her. In case you're not familiar with the case, Kitty Genovese was killed uh, in 1964, and this is the sort of legendary like bystander effect case in which, allegedly, 38 people heard and saw her undergoing two separate attacks and did nothing and didn't call the cops. And her brother is trying to get to the bottom of what really happened, including reaching out to the man who was convicted of her murder. And this is uh, this film is by James Solomon, and it's it does an excellent job of putting together voiceovers and research and Bill, the brother, is on a very compelling journey and is a very compelling person. And the build of this is outstanding. By the time you uh, hear this, it will have already aired in the New York City market. But Independent Lens is often available on the PBS app. You can check your local listings. They often rerun these films in the wee hours of the morning. So you can DVR it. And it is also available on Netflix. The Witness, yeah. Um, There is, I know, a review on NPR.org. And uh, thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, I have a really fun uh, good thing and a really trashy fun thing uh, this week. (laughs) The really fun good thing is that in preparation for the new Lifetime uh, Beaches, which starred Adina Menzel and Nia Long and unfortunately was not what uh, uh, my heart wanted it to be. But in preparation for that, I watched uh, Old Beaches. And you know it's really good? Old Beaches. Uh, <laughs> Beaches, the original Beaches, stars uh, Bette Midler and Barbara Hershey as friends who met when they were little girls and then they were pen pals for a long time. And then they come back together as adults as their their lives experience uh, triumph and tragedy. And there is a lot of delightful stuff in that movie. For one thing, that entrance early on when Mayim Bialik is playing young Bette Midler I remember when this movie came out, people saying, how do you ask a kid to play young Bette Midler? (laughs) Just watch the beginning of this movie. She is so funny and odd. And the fact that she came back to acting and is now, you know, that Maya Bialik, after going off and becoming a neuroscientist, is now back to comedic acting is such a lovely thing. And when you see her in this, you're reminded of how, I think, really talented and charismatic she is. But you also get in this movie all these kind of just tossed off little Bette Midler numbers, which are just there to be delightful. There's a huge theatrical staging of a a completely apocryphal story of the invention of the bra by the man named Otto Titzling. And that, unfortunately, is not in the Lifetime version, but it's delightful in the original. There's a little version of her singing uh, I've, I've Still Got My Health, which is great. I watched this and I thought, boy, this is a better movie than people who only remember that everyone cries and she sings Wind Beneath My Wings. Um, So that's my first one. My really trashy one, and I'm happy to be able to do this again uh, again while Sarah is here, Uh is that I have been watching uh, the Bravo show. I'm sorry. I've been watching the Bravo show Timber Creek Lodge. Oh, you're the other one. (laughs) Fantastic. So if you've ever seen the Bravo show Below Deck, it follows the crew of this yacht that like goes around and they bring rich people on. And so you've got like the people who who are the deckhands and the people who make the food and the people who clean the rooms. And it's like this, you know, group of six or eight good looking young people who all mingle. It's reality upstairs, downstairs at sea. Exactly. Mm. 
And Timber Creek Lodge is a very similar show, but it is the rentable ski lodge version where if you're a rich person, you rent this house. And not only are you renting the house, it's not like an Airbnb where you just go chill in the house. It comes with a staff and they cook for you and take care of you and treat you like a the rich person that you are. And uh, it it is really trashy, but it does not, to me, go over to the line to making me feel bad about myself, which is uh-huh. which is important. I care about this, right? I, I think we've all learned that images on television are important. And it's so trashy, but it doesn't, I don't have that feeling of like, oh, oh, I should not be here. They are taking advantage of these people. It's mostly just a bunch of pretty young people drinking and I believe that as you hear this, it will have just wrapped up its season. So uh, I watched a bunch of it on demand because I'm a bad person. <laughs> so uh, so again, Timber Creek Lodge, it is on Bravo or find its sister shows Below Deck and Below Deck Mediterranean, which I also really love. And please come talk about it with us uh, on right. the Pop Culture Happy Hour Facebook page because we've been very lonesome with this in our right. hearts and so you, far. Right. And you can get a lot of, uh, of content about this over at Previously.TV uh, also, which Sarah writes and which is delightful. Anyway, that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPRMonkeyC. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at GH Weldon. And you can follow Sarah at Tomato Nation. And you can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band Hello Come In provides our in and out music which you are tapping your foot to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening and we will see you right back here next week. <laughs>